It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. I think this is one of the strongest messages for me about the importance of network. To always make it clear and transparent to people around you, including senior people who you might be concerned to speak to because you think they're busy, let them know that you are open to new opportunities. Welcome to the National Security Podcast, brought to you by the ANU National Security College with support from policyforum.net. In this episode, we bring you the third instalment of the Women in National Security mini-series, produced in collaboration with Accenture. Hosts Gay Brotman and Meg Tapia are joined by Abigail Bradshaw, who wears two hats as Deputy Director General of the Australian Signals Directorate, ASD, and Head of the Australian Cyber Security Centre, ACSC. She explains the amazing steps that the ACSC has taken to achieve workforce gender balance and how they support working families. Join us as she discusses her love of leadership and approach to growing others to become amazing leaders themselves. Thanks for listening. Welcome to the Women in National Security podcast. I'm Gay Brotman. Hi, everybody. I'm Meg Tapia. And we're delighted you could join us for this latest episode. We begin by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet, the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people, and we pay our respects to the elders past, present and emerging. It's our great pleasure to be in conversation with Abby Bradshaw today. Abby has had a distinguished and diverse career across a broad range of national security agencies, a career that began in Navy. She has deep experience in crisis management and incident response and is now leading Australia's efforts to improve our nation's response to cyber threats and to build our cyber resilience. In a world where cybercrime and warfare is becoming increasingly sophisticated and complex, her role is vitally important to the security and safety of our nation. Welcome, Abby. Oh, thanks so much and thank you to the National Security College a great friend to Australia and national security, but also an awesome friend to the Australian Signals Directorate. Great place for great minds to be inspired and networked. Indeed. So the Australian Signals Directorate and the Australian Cyber Security Centre lead our nation's efforts against malicious cyber activity, and they also conduct offensive cyber intelligence. What does that actually mean? How do these organisations differ from other national security agencies? Yeah, that's a great question because we're such a secret organisation, aren't we? And it's really hard to get a handle on what happens behind some of those secret buildings. Look, our function's really revealed in our title, in our motto, if you like, which is reveal their secrets and protect our own. It's a mission that we've conducted for 75 years. Years And it essentially means that on the one hand, we are a foreign signals intelligence agency, and that means that we are tasked with gaining information about our foreign adversaries, their capabilities, their intent, their aspirations, uh, 
and then we utilise that information to protect ourselves. It's a different organisation to so many in the public service and many that I've worked in my almost 30 years in national security because it's a highly technical organisation. So whilst other elements of the national security community might be engaged in assessing our products or obtaining intelligence through other means like human intelligence, this is an organisation which utilises electronic means or increasingly cyber means to obtain that information and then to defend our domestic networks here in Australia from those that would do us harm. So 75 years old, how has it changed in 75 years? I mean, if you were um, someone involved in the organisation 75 years ago, would you recognise any element of it now? Well, you most certainly would. The mission of this organisation has stayed the same. How it's evolved is probably consistent with the way the rest of society has evolved with technology. So when you look at what we did 75 years ago, we started by protecting largely government and military communications. We were born of war out of the Second World War. And then communications and and technology were largely available to government and military organisations. Now, if you you consider how many times you picked up your smartphone and how many texts you sent this morning, perhaps you used a voice-activated Sonus speaker at home or asked Siri a question, how many emails did you send this morning? We are all so much more connected on so many different electronic mediums. And now we use those electronic mediums not only to communicate for official purposes, but actually to conduct our lives. And so that means the evolution of ASD, and in particular the centre that I run, the Australian Cyber Security Centre, in 2018 the government made a decision that actually this centre, using all of the knowledge that we have from our Five Eye and international partnerships about our adversaries and about how technology can be exploited, would increase our customers to not only government and military customers, but to providers of critical infrastructure, to businesses, to small to medium businesses, and in fact to every Australian, so that we can really lift our cybersecurity resilience on a whole-of-economy basis. So when did you realise you wanted to lead our defensive cyber capability, what moment was that and what motivated you? So I can honestly say that five years ago or even throughout my life, if you told me I would be running a technical organisation, I would have thought that was fanciful. Mm -hmm. For me, the way that this worked was probably a high degree of luck, great networks, but really the culmination of a bunch of experiences where I ended up working in Prime Minister and Cabinet running the National Security Division. And PMC is such an important experience to have, or in fact working for any of what we call the central agencies, is a really important experience to have, um, particularly for people in the national security environment, because we tend to get completely enclosed and siloed in our own world of national security. And increasingly, we really need to broaden that to understand how the rest of sort of social policy levers and economic levers work. So I went into Prime Minister and and Cabinet and I realised just how important this cyber thing was, just how important 
ensuring that we are well postured to have our own sovereign technological capabilities, how those need to be protected, how our networks and the networks that we build to communicate and connect with each other need to be secure by design and how important they are for economic prosperity, social unity, as well as national security. So that was the moment for me in Prime Minister and Cabinet when I saw how elevated this issue was. But as a corollary, my own, I love operational areas. I love the dynamic nature of operational entities. I love the fast pace. I love the fact that you never know what the operations going to be the next day. And I love leading people. And all those things sort of came together for me in a moment. And I, I was so lucky to see the advertisement. I knew I just, I just had to go for it. Abby, thank you for giving us that insight into, as you say, what is largely a very secretive organisation. So thank you. I want to talk a bit about your early career. I understand that you started in the Royal Australian Navy, and that's a clearly a long way from where you are today leading a cyber agency. Thinking back to that time, what motivated you to join the Navy? Sure. Well, the military and working for my country is in my blood. My great-grandfather was in the military. My father was in the military. My husband was in the military. So you're getting this sort of pattern there. And I studied law at university. And I can tell you the last thing my parents wanted me to do was to join the military. But I did. And I had the most fabulous decade in the Royal Australian Navy. I did amazing things. I actually ended up, this will be strange to hear, I ended up in an industrial relations role where I advocated for the pain conditions of different employment categories right across the Australian Defence Force. That was actually one of the best jobs I've ever had because it enabled me to meet with people who did you know, the hundreds of different jobs that you can have in the military, from driving submarines to driving planes to EW operators. In fact, my first visit to the then DSD or Defence Signals Directorate was when I ran a pay case for them. But more importantly, actually, the job that I do today is really founded in the great leadership skills that I learnt when I joined the Navy. It's those fundamentals of leadership, the confidence that training and that baseline and those experience gave me to understand that I wouldn't always be the technical expert, but to rely on those base leadership skills of obtaining the information to fill the gaps in your own knowledge of relying on a team rather than self to solve every problem. And that was the best baseline experience I really could have had for any job, frankly. And I'm always grateful for the time and the networks that I've built in that part of my career. That's amazing. And um, you mentioned there the job you did with Pay Navy. Have I understood correctly that you were awarded the Conspicuous Service Cross for that role? Can you tell me what that experience was like, uh, being awarded uh, in that way so early in your career? It was a real moment for me. It's funny because the Conspicuous Service Cross is actually, when you wear it, and I wear it on Anzac Day, It's a large uh, sort of yellow and gold striped cross. So it is very, by nature, conspicuous when you wear it. (laughs) And I think people often come up to me and ask me, you know, who did I dive in the water to save or, you know, uh, and I have to tell them, well, actually, this was largely for superannuation reform. 
which kind of sounds trite, but I'm not going to underestimate actually what that achievement was. It was highly complex. It was a sequence of work which fundamentally changed the basis on which 60,000 people were paid. And it resulted in a change to the calculation of superannuation outcomes for those people, which impacts them not only in the moment, but them and their dependents for the rest of their lives. And I felt very deeply about that work, not for self, but for those people that dedicate their lives to keeping Australians safe. So it was an awesome moment in my career and one that I'm extremely proud of. Yeah, I I don't think we can underestimate the importance of all roles in the national security domain, including those that work largely behind the scenes, but supporting our people through things like pay and HR and uh, mental health and superannuation, for example. So after the Navy, you had various roles in the public sector, including Home Affairs and Prime Minister and Cabinet, as you mentioned, and also the National Bushfire Recovery Agency. So what was it that drew you to defence and the Australian public sector or service? And what was the attraction of national security for you? Yeah, look, I just had an innate attraction always to that mission of working for my country and defending my country. There are moments I spent three years almost in the High Commission in London actually running our visa and humanitarian programs and and engagements on border and customs. And I can remember the moment of standing in the High Commission, singing the national anthem and giving certificates of, of citizenship to European people who were you essentially giving a different pathway to life to visiting some of our humanitarian visa processing centres in Africa, for example, where you're giving people the same opportunity to live in, you know, the best country in the world, frankly, and that's something that I've just always felt largely connected to my country and my people because I think we have a lot to be proud of. So it was a natural fit for me. I never had a plan. I never really decided the moment that I was going to join customs, for example, or move into people smuggling. They were always opportunities that were presented to me, but not in a formal sense. And I I think this is one of the strongest messages for me about the importance of network, to always make it clear and transparent to people around you, including senior people who you might be concerned to speak to because you think they're busy, let them know that you are open to new opportunities because that's how I've obtained most of my roles actually is making it clear to people around me that I'm interested in a topic or I'm interested in a change or I'm interested in a new challenge and I've found that those people, no matter how busy they or senior they are, actually remember in the back of their minds when a job comes up, oh, actually Abby said she wouldn't mind that role or would be interested in a change and most of them have happened while we've had transparent processes. The way I've approached those roles is because people have recalled, I've said, I wouldn't mind working for you in the future. So at what point in the current role do you actually make your intentions for opportunities known to those around you, those more senior people? There are various sort of levels of readiness and I think we should all be always be ready for the next challenge mm. Right. So it's not necessarily about ringing or texting a great deal of people and saying, I want to change now. It's about keeping that dialogue 
open along the way. But also, you know, meeting those people aren't necessarily in your direct chain, catching up with them, whether that's for a cup of coffee or going to conferences or going on courses and keeping your eyes open. Keep open to what else is going on in your community and beyond, because that's when those opportunities and and your sense of where you might want to move next will come up. And by keeping your face in the game, you will remain relevant to people and in their consciousness as someone that's energised. That's great advice. You've clearly done that. You've worked in several organisations and no doubt your networks have had uh, a hand in that, in that through those networks, you've been able to identify the opportunities to move between organisations. I'm wondering why for you is career diversity important? What's the value of moving organisations and not staying in the same job? Yeah, well, for some people that they are really attracted to a long, deep sense of specialisation and they get satisfaction from that deep sense of understanding and knowledge. And I think organisations need that. But I also believe that organisations need a breadth of experience. And, And if I consider, you know, the tapestry of my career and how it's brought me to really engage in the role I'm in now... Experiences like the one I had at the National Bushfire Recovery Agency, which really led me to deal with Australians, normal Australians, Australians that don't live in Canberra, that are just trying to get on with their lives, get over something really horrific that's happened to them. And in that case, you know, losing their businesses or their homes to fire. But how people in an emergency situation or a shock situation like that absorb information, what they need. And that's completely relatable to my function here in the cybersecurity centre when the people here that staff our 24-7 hotline are responding to Australians who've been the subject of a ransomware attack or how you engage with a small business who's super busy just trying to get their product out there on how to raise their cybersecurity resilience and why that's important. And the need to be able to communicate in a variety of different forms with those people in a way that meets their needs, not the way we speak as bureaucrats here in Canberra. By the same token, the experience that I had as as the Deputy Commander in Maritime Border Command at the height of people smuggling and that need to deal with urgency and potential uh, significant loss, potential loss of life, and the way to really steel yourself personally to deal with that, to plan very carefully, to engage with risk very carefully and to ensure that your team is okay and not absorbing all the stress from that situation so that they're able to cope with the next event. Those are skills that I bring into this context. So, you know, for example, on the day that you discover a a new zero-day vulnerability and the need to work at pace super quickly to ensure that as many Australians know about that vulnerability to lift their defences, but also to prepare for the prospect that we might have a major compromise and how we're going to deal with that and raise the resources to get the malicious actors out to clean up networks and to get up and running again. They're all related experience that you bring to bear in the next role. It sounds to me like mission and people and new experiences have been a constant thread through your career. Are there other threads, do you think, for you that have come through those experiences? I heard you mention leadership earlier. Yeah, so I love leading, always have. The part about leadership I love the most is growing incredible people into amazing leaders 
themselves and taking them through those experiences, engaging really transparently and honestly about performance, seeing people respond to that in an attitudinal way and grow as individuals to grow the confidence in particular that they need to apply for that next promotion. That is the most rewarding part, I think, of leadership, to grow a team, to have people who actually work together and to grow that trust amongst each other. National security is a great place to grow that sort of team. We're so tightly knit because We work on challenges that can be so significant and quite often we can only share them amongst themselves. So you get a real unique sense of team in agencies like mine. You talk about the growth in this sector and there's more growth coming with the recent announcement of the $9.9 billion and uh, the growth of 1900 people over the next five years. Now, the Australian Cybersecurity Centre has already achieved 50% women in leadership and you've got close to 40% of women across over all your staffing. And I understand more than, was it 52% of women who are now in the graduate intake? So these are really impressive figures, Abby, and congratulations. So just we're very keen to pick your brains on how you actually got to these extraordinary results. I mean, did you have targets? Did you change your recruitment process? Were there particular policies or programs that you introduced specifically to reach these incredibly impressive figures? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, We have been incredibly successful, but I I just want to stop and acknowledge that incredible investment that the government's made in us. This will be an amazing, it is an amazing agency now, but we are super excited about that investment and what it means for where this agency will be in, in five years, which means actually not everyone has to work in Canberra, as well as getting closer to a number of our customers, you know, big critical infrastructure providers, banking networks, small to medium enterprise. We know we need to be closer to our customers. And we also know that we're going to really increase our prospects for promoting best and brightest if we open up to the rest of Australia. On the question of female participation in ASD, it is remarkable, but actually female leadership and participation has been a major part of our sort of work, our signals intelligence work, right back to World War II. So some of your listeners might have heard about the the Garage Girls. They were an elite task force of women that would decipher vital intelligence signals during World War II. And when General MacArthur moved his signals intelligence headquarters into Brisbane, into this big house, at the back of it, this garage had these 12 Typex machines. They were British cipher machines that were adapted from the German Enigma. And they were operated by women, actually, from the Australian Women's Army Service. And those women became known as the Garage Girls. So having strong female participation in our workforce, not in support functions, but in core mission is part of our Mm. DNA. And I really think that helps. We have, for the first time, we are the first intelligence agency to have a female head. So Rachel Noble is is the Director General of the Australian Signals Directorate. And what that means is that in a number of our divisions and branches, females have a complete female 
reporting line all the way to the top. So there are a variety of examples, which I think is important. We don't all lead in in the same way for young women joining ASD to engage in. We have also tried very hard for a number of years to engage women when they're girls. So we run a girls programming network, for example, and that's available for female students in year four through to year 12. And we have about 340 girls from all over Australia in, engaging in that program each year. So they're just they're some of the sort of measures that we've used that I think have contributed to our success. A couple of others. One is that we work very hard in ASD, and I know Rachel Noble feels very strongly about this herself as a Director General, as a role model for many women in government and national security but as a mother and a parent. And we ensure that we have processes and policies in place that enable both partners to engage in parenting. So not biased towards one gender or another, but to ensure, for example, our morning brief, we shifted till 9.30 in the morning, not nine o'clock, so that parents could have an equal opportunity to drop their kids in the morning and prepare for morning brief. Just that 30 minutes made a massive difference to participation for both sides of our workforce. We have a sort of golden rule about having meetings in core hours of the day and we feel very strongly about making those opportunities to engage in your children's lives equitably available. We have the most amazing carers program. In fact, it's unique. I've never seen this anywhere else in the public service. But because we operate in largely compartmented and highly classified areas, it's really hard to go out and have a coffee and catch people up with where their agency is up to when they're off on maternity or paternity leave. We actually engage our carers in an on-site program. So they come in with the strollers, with the babies, into a skiff, and we have a chat to keep them in touch with what's going on in the organisation in a, in a really safe but open way. So you've spoken there about the the flexibility of the arrangements. From a single mother perspective, I understand that you've got a number of mechanisms that allow for opportunities for single mothers to actually manage their work and also manage their commitments at home. We do. We, um, we've worked really hard to break out of a single classification. So not all work for the Australian Signals Director. It needs to be done at the top secret level. Now, if you accept that premise and you accept that there is useful work that can be done on the low side, then that generates, or an unclassified network, I should say, or a lower classification network, that generates all sorts of opportunities for work from home and flexibility. We also invest deeply in team and ensuring because we're a 24-7 operation, there always must be layers of redundancy. And that means one of our most operationally focused branch heads is a single carer. And we were able to ensure that she was able to maintain even a 24-7 operational leadership function and still give her the flexibility to tend to her caring needs. 
So just in terms of that allowing for the ability to work from home on less classified or unclassified material, because there's been a, a sort of a view in the national security community more broadly that everything is super secure and super classified and nothing shall move beyond the realms of the building in which we work. And so has that actually required a rethink yeah, that's right. So when you look at the Australian cybersecurity's mission, a large proportion of that mission is engaging with Australians. The incident response work is a normal telephone line that operates engaged with Australians at cyber.gov.au, which hosts all of our advisories and our assistance, you know, our step-by-step guides, etc. That's a open to the community website. So those vital functions can all be performed on the low side. And actually, we discovered even incident response phone lines during the COVID period, we were able to manage and sustain our workforce on those lines, even though they weren't even able to come into the building. So that gives us enormous opportunity because of the nature of the work to give, uh, firstly, people a taste of what it's like to to work in the Australian Signals Directorate before they even get to the positive vetting stage and to engage in useful and really motivating work before they might make decisions about whether they want to move further into other missions. I just want to, for our listeners, um, clarify there. So you said low side. So listeners, that means unclassified. That means there's no security classification attached to that. And you said positive vetting. And that really is the highest level of security clearance that you can attain in Australia. Thank you for decrypting my language. (laughs) That's okay. (laughs) We tend to fall into the acronyms. So, Abby, clearly you've got a really great heritage of female leadership, um, some groundbreaking operational activity that women have done. You mentioned the Garage Girls, and you obviously continue to break barriers. What is your view on how conversations in national security need to change in order to attract more diverse talent? Yeah, so we just did this review actually of our of our recruitment campaign and it was very telling for the Australian Signals Directorate. I mean, that that was of great interest, obviously. You want to make sure that your message is getting through in in a a palatable way for your audience. But some of the findings of that review, I think, would probably resonate more broadly across the national security community. And that is that people feel, potential people who might engage in the national security jobs feel that it is a very muscular environment, feel that they are not smart enough because only the very smartest people can engage there and possibly feel that it is the realm of leaders who can only be male because there are a large number of of male leaders. So I think the start point there is actually really getting people to understand that whilst there are extremely clever people, there are other attributes other than IQ that mean you can be a valuable contributor. For us in the Australian Signals Directorate, it's actually about people that are a bit cunning, a bit curious and like problem solving. And we find actually that we don't need the highest qualified. We don't want everyone to have a PhD in technology or one of those STEM fields. We need a broad church of people who come and work in team 
to tackle complex problems from the analysis perspective, through the planning perspective, so how are we going to respond to this problem, and then through the operational phases, perhaps if you're trying to disrupt a criminal cyber syndicate online, we need people to understand what's the most effective way of doing that. So we actually need people who understand psychology. And one of our greatest stars in countering cybercrime was actually a hairdresser. They are the ultimate humanters, um, hairdressers. They know exactly how to get the most out of you. You know, How many of us have gone into the hairdressers and decided you're going to put down the shutters and you're not talking and before you know it, you're pouring out <laughs> all of the gumph that's happened to you last week? Well, our girl was w- one of those girls who just happened to come across our, our awesome motto, reveal their secrets, protect our own, and she thought, well, that's a pretty cool place. She went into into broader defence, actually, into a non-technical role and then made her way into the Australian Signals Directorate where she is now engaged as part of the operational planning team to disrupt these cyber syndicates. Last year, you might remember, we had this dreadful syndicate that was operating off the dark web, selling a franchise that would download malware onto people's handsets, stealing credentials and then taking their money. And it was targeted in a way to sort of leverage people's fear and need for information and services during the COVID period. And they were taking a lot of money from Australians. And she formed part of the team that worked out how to get back up into their C2 or their command and control arrangements. We completely disrupted that and then made sure that all of the press around them or their all their sort of advertising and uh, spruiking on the dark web was completely discredited and then ensured the operation went on so that the business couldn't get back up on its feet. So there's an example of a person who was simply inspired by a mission. Fortunately for us and unfortunately for the criminals, she spends the bulk of her time fighting the bad guys online. What does a day in her life look like? Well, for the people that work the cybercrime mission, we're an operational agency. So we work on a cycle where I think I mentioned we have a morning brief in the morning and so we get together as a team. We take stock of the intelligence and the operational insights that we've obtained through the night because, of course, our Five Eye and other international partners are working through the night. We take stock of the calls to our, from Australians to our 24-7 watch floor and we consider what patterns all of that information might reveal that's oh okay that's not a one-off that's actually something we need to chase down and we also do a big scan of the media because quite often people don't want to engage with us perhaps they don't know that we're available perhaps they are concerned about engaging with intelligence agency and then we triage all of that into jobs and for someone like her she'd be working in a team where we'd divvy up the work for incident response. So you might be part of a team that's ringing the hospital that's been subject to a ransomware uh, attack. You might be finding ways that we can exchange what we call technical artefacts. So by that, I mean, let me have a look at your disk image or telemetry, which is just really code for your zeros and ones, because we can analyse that and determine whether or not we've seen those zeros and ones before, whether they look like other bad guys and then working really with that entity to find out how did they get in how can we shut the doors how can we ensure that malicious actor is out of the system and then another team might be working on okay 
who else do we need to tell about this and forewarn in case they attack them? Is that attack part of a broader syndicate? How broad is that syndicate? Do we have legal powers? Do we have an opportunity here to disrupt to ensure that we prevent harm on Australians? So you can see how just one report will reverberate into a whole bunch of different teams working different angles. We'll have another team, for example, analysing those technical artefacts to try and turn them very quickly into plain English advice for Australians to say, there's a problem with this piece of software. You must patch this now to close the doors before the same thing might happen to you. That's the sort of 24-7 cycle we're working. The underpinning for all the roles is that sort of curiosity, that degree of being cunning, and also that commitment to serving the nation. That's right. It's what all our people have have in, in common. Um, wondering how does culture play a role in all of this? Yes, ASD has a really strong culture which embodies all of those things, that strong attachment to mission, which you'll find resonates with every em- employer, get curiosity, teamwork, but absolute celebration for deep expertise and a more embracing culture of diversity than I've possibly ever experienced before because there is an underpinning understanding that with inclusion and diversity comes different perspectives on the most complex problems. And most of our people will experience a moment where they weren't able to reverse engineer a piece of malware or or obtain information unless they had the benefit of a broader set of views. So real celebration of excellence and of teamwork. But as a secret organisation, staff obviously can't go home and celebrate their success with family and friends. So how do you celebrate that? We're trying really hard actually to give our staff tools that enable them to celebrate publicly. And I think ASD's actually come a long way. We're one of the first agencies to start a a conscious program of declassifying actually our documents and we celebrate those and explain them on asd.gov.au. We have the most magnificent display called Decoded on at the National Museum of Australia at the moment, which, which tells with a variety of interactive exhibits, our story right from 1947 through to our engagement in terrorism, which started with Bali bombings, and actually some of the most extroverted people in ASD standing up and telling their story in these interactive digital displays. So we are assisting them to tell their story in a declassified way, I think being more open and transparent about our use of our extraordinary powers. So the disruption of cybercrime where offshore powers, which we obtained in 2018, where we are able to, we do release media and stories, public stories about those powers. But of course, that needs to be measured. We'll be right back. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. 
Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Just reflecting on your career, what moments have stood out for you as pivotal in your journey to the current role? What were the sort of the, the turning points for you? So I think probably a variety of roles. I've spoken about the industrial relations role. Those were amazing skills, which I learned actually from a Queen's Council that I was a junior to. I mean, it was the most amazing experience. No one gets that out in private practice. There I was at 20, 25, 26, working for a Queen's Council from Martin Place. Uh, I just couldn't believe my luck. And that gentleman taught me how to absorb enormous amounts of information, but to turn them into the story. What's the story in a strategic context that we need to influence decision makers about here? It's not a pay case. A pay case operates in a broader context of national strategy. But he also taught me very good lessons about when you do have great power, to use that carefully. Don't always use it when you can. It's actually the moments when you don't use it that will quite often influence an outcome. So he taught me that, the power of influence and and communication and use of power. I think the time that I had in what was then Border Protection Command or Maritime Border Command taught me great personal resilience about how to deal with what was incredibly stressful and often distressing and literally 24-7. And we were talking about a time when we we were having, you know, boat arrivals sort of every eight hours. It was a 24-7 highly stressful role, but taught me skills about how to almost slow things down. So whenever I see an emergency now, my immediate response is to put two feet flat on the ground and to breathe very deeply and not do anything quickly. Actually slow down what's coming on, making sure that you nail the facts. Don't operate on anything until you've checked twice that it's right. To think through your plan What are the risks that are associated with that? How am I going to manage it? And what if my plan doesn't work? What's my backup when the first strategy fails? You know, you need to assume that you will encounter failure, that things will go wrong. And at the end of that, no one is superhuman. What's the strategy that I'm going to use to take some time out to centre myself, to attend to the things that are also important in my life, my own children, my own husband, the space that makes me feel safe and recharged, what are those things so that I'm able to get back on my feet again and do it again tomorrow and the next day and the next day? So two questions. First up, in terms of that sort of standing back, stand on both feet solidly and assessing the situation and kind of taking a bit of a deep breath. So given the urgency of many of the issues that you're dealing with, the fast pace at which you have to react. How do you do that? Literally, physically. For me, it's a physical response, um, which I've learned from, actually, I used to, I really wanted to be a music teacher when I first grew up. I I learned piano and 
flute and we have to do these exams once a year and it's just a ghastly sort of arrangement your whole life falls and or survives on the basis of a one hour exam and I found I had to learn at a very young age how to physically contain my stress in those situations particularly if you're playing something that requires fine uh, motor movement mm. or breathing in the case of mm, a wooden. Breathing. And important so li- to breathe. Yeah, very important to breathe. And I literally do that. I, it's about saying, okay, this is coming towards me. And I'm thinking those words in my head, Abby, this is going to be stressful. This is going to be hard. Slow it down. Breathe. I literally do put two feet flat on the ground. I do a lot of public speaking. Here's something. I don't like public speaking terribly much. There are times when I don't want to meet new people. I just want to curl up and have a cup of tea and not see anyone. And I use the same physical acknowledging that that's the way I'm feeling, slowing things down, giving myself space to prepare for the discomfort that I'm about to engage in, allowing myself to have the support around me. So thinking always forward this is going to be hard. This is really going to compress my time going forward. So what do I need to remove? What clutter can I remove? What are the, who are the people that I need around me to make sure that I can focus on the parts that are most important? And this comes right down to sort of physical reminders for myself in those times. Wearing flat shoes for me is like it's just, <laughs> it is one more thing that I just need to sort of remove <laughs> Just to make things easy. Whenever I do public speaking, I always wear flat shoes because I know I'm going to get nervous and I know I'm going to shift from gonna, one foot to another. I'm going to take that tip from you, yeah. Abby. Uh, my, my, I, ha- I wear very high heels, so maybe I should start wearing flats. Can I just say um, thank you for that because I think a lot of women, a lot of people actually, feel nervous and feel anxious going into new situations. Public speaking is not for everyone. It's certainly not for me either. And I do something similar. So I box breathe uh, in order to calm myself and centre myself. But it's really wonderful to hear someone like you at your level who appears to us as very composed and who has it very together to be honest about the nerves that you feel and sharing that with everyone. So if you're out there and listening to this, you're not the only one. If you feel that way, Abby feels it too. I feel it too. I imagine, well, Gay's spoken about this. She doesn't feel it. She's super centered. She's amazing. But feel confident and feel comfortable that you're not alone. So just getting back to the second question, Abby, it's about those strategies that you use in in terms of your personal life on the building the resilience. What are the strategies that you use to build that resilience when you're away from the office? Yeah, it's a great question. Everyone will do this slightly differently. I think the most important thing is that everyone has that strategy. Acknowledge that you need to actually be a little bit selfish to be a leader. You actually need to acknowledge that to be a good leader and to engage in stress, you need to do things for yourself. So for me, that's working out what helps me recenter and get back onto kilter? We've all had those days where you're humming so hard and you get into bed and you know you're exhausted and you, you can't mm. sleep. You so you need to acknowledge when you're hitting that as well. What are the cues for you? For me, I, I've mentioned that I love music and I also love walking. And so sometimes I just take myself off with a really a good set of headphones and really loud music. I'm older now, so I really don't care what people think when they see me so if I throw out a few dance moves as I'm walking around the lake you know that just helps me physically expel that energy and it and it feels good too 
embarrasses my children if I'm walking with them, but never mind. You know, I really need people to tell me I'm good. I think we all do as human beings and women are really shocking at seeking that positive feedback. Mm. So one of the best things for me is I have this awesome, small but quality set of friends who just have a sense of when it's time to check in and play back those things, play back the things that I found hard, but also that I can engage with when I think I've done things really well. And to hear them, you know, give you that positive reinforcement. And we as women actually need to get much better at that. Having a frame of people who celebrate with you those achievements, but also check in and say, hey, you okay? You're doing all right? That looked really hard. Don't not call in. That's really great advice. Before we wrap up, I want to ask you um, just to reflect on, I guess, the totality of your career. You've held both policy and operational roles, and I want to understand how these different experiences have shaped you as a leader. Yeah, so I, I think I've been really fortunate to experience both. I actually really enjoy both as well, but truth be told, I much prefer the operational because I like not knowing what's going to happen uh tomorrow, what the problem will be tomorrow. But actually, when you've done operations uh, at a strategic level, you need good policy. You understand the need when variables come along. I need a really strong policy framework in which I can operate in because that gives me the left and and right of arc. And therefore, I understand the benefits of working in that policy space and ensuring for operational agencies, the parameters are clear that the thinking is clear about what the second order impacts might be of having that policy and that I understand whether or not it's implementable from an operational perspective. Just finally, who has inspired you? Uh, Who's been your greatest source of inspiration in your life, in your career? And who is that? Yeah, so for me, it starts with my grandmother, Alma. And Alma was a fitter and designer for Mr. Meyer in Melbourne. And she used to walk in her green shoes to Spencer Street Station and at the age of 14 was cutting material on the floor of of Meyer and and making dresses. And Alma was one of nine children and her parents owned lorries. And actually, funnily enough, her dad was very active in the union movement. So that was kind of weird, wasn't it? You know, so how I came back to that industrial relations Mm. role, I used to think about her a lot. But Alma didn't have a great marriage. She had two children herself, fortunately, my my mum included, and she was one of the first women to get divorced in the early 60s in a time when no one did that. Bought her own block of land in Greensboro and, and including the block of land next door. Walked several miles to fill up her water um, in a pail each day and bring it back to the home with my mum. Made amazing clothes for opera singers and the well-to-do of Melbourne in her spare time while she worked at the Repat. So Alma was the one of the first sort of guiding lights for me, an incredibly independent and strong woman who didn't do things according to what the societal settings were at the time, but such incredible independence and strength, which really sort of flowed through to my own mother and then, you know, I've always had those guiding lights about, you know, what was worth fighting for and retaining that independence. When I moved into the public sector, I was very fortunate. When I moved into the Australian Customs Service, for example, I had a female reporting line 
through band two, through to Marion Grant. I'm not sure whether you remember. She was a DEPSEC and the head of compliance and enforcement and customs back in the 2010s. And that for me was coming out of defence was quite remarkable to have this woman in this senior operational role. And I think seeing women like that and then, of course, uh, Rachel Noble, who's been a a deputy at at Mm. Pine Gap and now the first head of an intelligence agency, it's really important that we celebrate those role models and accept that they've all got there through different means. But I think that resilience and independent thought is sort of key in all of those people from Alma right through to Rachel. That's amazing. Your, your story of Alma is really beautiful. Mm. Thank you for sharing that with us. It's, she sounds like an amazing role model. Yeah. So, Abby, my top three takeaways from this conversation have been about the importance of great networks, both professional and personal, and how your career can grow significantly through these networks, how this helps you to identify new opportunities and also have interesting experiences through your career. Uh, My second takeaway is that you need to find your passion. And for you, Abby, it sounds like that's the mission and it's supporting the people to deliver the mission. And I really resonate with that because I'm very mission oriented as well. Um, And thirdly, to really think through your plan. So you said you will encounter failure. We all encounter failure at some point in our lives and in our career. But you can have a strategy to centre yourself, to assess the situation before moving forward. And for me, that's really about responding instead of reacting. Meg, that's awesome. Yeah, thank you. I've actually learned a lot about myself listening to you play that back. So that's very cathartic and just spot on. Thank you. Thanks so much for being in conversation with us today, Abby. Thanks for your candour and also thank you for being so open in sharing your career journey but also in many ways your personal journey and what you've learned along the way. And thank you, our listeners. If you like the idea of revealing their secrets and protecting our own, then head to the ASD and the ACSC website. There's also scholarships available at the National Security College website. Before you go, we now have an email and we want to hear from you at natsecpod at anu.edu.au. Don't worry, we'll put that in the show notes. And hit that subscribe button because you do not want to miss our next guest. She is none other than Catherine Byrne, the Deputy Director General of the Australian Secret Intelligence Service. If you watch spy movies like me and you want to know what foreign espionage is really like, then do not miss our next pod. Until then, thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.